0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. You know, you know that book, right? <laughs> it's in the Old Testament, <clears throat> uh, to the right of the Psalms couple of books after Daniel. It's the shortest book of the Old Testament, so it's, you can fly right by it. So uh, just give each other permission to check the table of contents if we need to. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Jed Brown. I'm the associate pastor, our senior pastor, Steve Clark. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Psalm 34.2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let's pray. Father God, Father of the nations, King of the nations, king of my soul it is an infinite mercy and an infinite miracle that i can say that, that you are the king of my soul that you are the lord of my heart that i am yours and you are mine that is a miracle full of infinite mercy that I can say that. I thank You. I thank You. I, th- I thank You because as, uh, as, as you know, as I was sitting in McDonald's this morning, I, 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 I look around and I see, I see the old men in the corner They're there every Sunday morning telling tall tales. I see the Spanish-speaking employees in the back Working their tails off to bring me some some food. I see the solitary man in the corner. I see the the disabled man walking down the sidewalk. I see the young teenager on her phone running in, late for work, late for her shift. I see all of these people. All of these people. And I see me sitting there and I think we all, all of us in this McDonald's right now, we all need you. And yet, I think I, I know you. I still need you and yet you have been infinitely merciful to me and, and I can say I, I know you. And I, and I also know what they don't know. I, I, I know what you are bringing to this world. I know what you're going to, to do. The, the Bible tells me so. I know it, and they don't. Right there in that, in that McDonald's are, are several, many nations represented. And they don't know. They don't know what's coming. So I, I pray this morning that you would, you, you would make my words clear. But would you do more than make it, make it clear? What, what, what's the use of, of my words being clear if they don't affect something that you want? If they don't affect more of your glory out there? If, if they don't affect the, the advancement of your kingdom out there? And if they don't affect the advancement of your kingdom within our hearts? So, so please, would you cause your word to go forth and do the work that you have appointed for it to do today, to the people you have appointed to be here. Would you include me in that? Would you even would you let me hear the, the, the words of this sermon and, and be affected? Please work. Please glorify your name in here and out there. Please use Use your word today to cause more of your people to be possessed by you. Pray this in your name. Amen. So it's election season. Tuesday is Super Tuesday. I heard on the radio yesterday the time when we as a nation begin to pay more attention to The trajectory our country is on? Are we heading in the right place? Are these the right people to lead us there or away from there? We begin to think whether these are the right set of leaders. It has been said that a country deserves its government or its leaders, and I think the prophet Obadiah would agree with that. (laughs) This short book, it's only 21 verses long, is about two nations. Specifically, it's about Edom and Israel. Obadiah is God's oracle, God's prophecy to an ancient and very localized situation in the Middle East. And yet this book is universal. Universal over all nations and all time. It speaks to us now, today, to your nation, whatever nation that is. Obadiah's message is this. Like Edom... God will justly humble the nations, but He mercifully gives His people escape that they may possess and save the nations. I'll say that again. Like Edom, God will justly humble the nations, but He mercifully gives His people escape that they may possess and save the nations. So let's walk through this oracle so you can see where this comes from. I'm going to read the text and then give some explanations as I go along. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. We don't know who Obadiah was, but we know from the sentence that this is a vision of God. So it kind of doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Why Edom? Edom means red. And it is the area that Esau settled in. Esau, the red-headed twin brother of Jacob from Isaac. Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of red porridge. The cousins Edom and Israel were sometimes at war, sometimes at peace. When Moses brought the people out of Egypt, the Edomites did not allow them to pass through their land, but instead told them to go around. David eventually would conquer the Edomites, through much bloodshed, but then they later rebelled and shook off Israel and became independent. Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for, against her for battle. So here, right out of the gate, we see two layers, two, two actors involved. Two actors involved in this and in all human events. Some some human messenger was moving about the the neighboring nations, inviting Edom's neighbors to attack her, to take her down. But this messenger, this report, it says, is from God. God, Yahweh, he is Lord and Master of all human events. Man decides what he's going to do, but God is always the sovereign Lord of everything, of all human events. There are two actors here. Verses 2 through 4, behold, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God was destroying Edom for one reason, verse 3, the pride in their heart. The location of pride is the human heart in people and in nations. Edom was just south, located just south of Judah, and was a narrow country, and it sat on trade routes. They were very rich, and they trusted, took pride in those riches. And they had mountains they could hide in to protect themselves. But they had also carved these great cities along tall red cliffs, accessible only by the narrowest of canyons. Um, if you've seen, if you've seen uh, the city Petra in National Geographic magazines, or if you saw the, I think it's the third Indiana Jones movie, it's where Indiana Jones and his dad find the Holy Grail, ironically. Petra was its name. Petra was the capital of Edom. And they, they, they carved these great cities in the, in, in the cliffs of the, ironically, red rocks. It was said that it would only take 12 men to defend the whole city from, a, from an entire army because of the narrow passageways to this city. They took pride in their defenses. No one can ever touch us. The Hebrew of verses three and four is blunt and terse. Who will bring me down? God says, I will bring you down. From your perch of strength because of your pride, I will justly humble you. Verses five through seven. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Note here how Obadiah is he's recording the vision and he's seeing the vision and he interrupts his own sentence. He's he's aghast at seeing God's judgment. It's as if it's already happened. The the, the cadence of the Hebrew here is is like a funeral dirge. He's he's so aghast, he interrupts his own sentence. If plunderers came by night, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If, If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Normally thieves will take just enough for themselves and then leave the rest. And normally uh, grape harvesters would come in and leave a little bit for the poor. But nothing will be left of Edom. And that's true. True. This actually happened. Today, Edom is gone. It's empty. It's just a Hollywood movie set. That's it. God ordained that Edom's judgment would come by betrayal from its friends. Edom won't see the trap coming, and we'll we'll see why in a moment, why God ordains that betrayal is the means. Verses 8 and 9. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. Teman is another city or area of Edom where evidently there was much military strength. So that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. All the structures that make a society great, security, wealth, wisdom, military might, wiped away. Now, the evidence of their pride, the, 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 the outward acting of the pride of their heart is described in verses 10 through 14. These events probably happened in 586, 587 BC when uh, Nathan mentioned this earlier, when King Nebuchadnezzar invaded uh, Judah and basically burned Jerusalem to the ground. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Edom stood aloof. They watched it all happen. They gloated. And then they joined in with the Babylonians. They even, verse 14 Um, intercepted the refugees fleeing from Judah, captured them, and sent them back to the Babylonians. Brutal, violent, despicable betrayal. And the Lord says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Edom's punishment will and and did perfectly match the crime. No more, no less. It was not immediate. It probably took somewhere between 50 and 200 years, 200 years for it to happen, but it happened. After about 200 years, uh, Edom was gone, and that area was completely occupied by, as I read, Nabataean Arabs, completely gone. But there is also a turn in the oracle here. The the day of the Lord, the day of judgment and salvation is near, it says. It is imminent to all nations. All nations. There is something in Edom's pride that makes it a good stand-in, a prototype for all nations. God will bring just punishment to all nations for the pride of their heart, but... At the same time, he will bring salvation to his people. Verses 16 through 21. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, as as invaders have drunk the the, the cup of victory, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow the, the, the cup of judgment. And it shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephalah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. Saviors. To rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's a lot of geography, <clears throat> um, but just to understand this, the the boundaries being described in those final verses really simply describe the land promised to Abraham, the Promised Land. So we should expect this or- oracle would be fulfilled by God's people possessing. Note how that, how that word is, is repeated, possessing something, something real, possessing real dirt, real land. And yet And yet from the context, verse 15, that this is the day of the Lord, the, the day that the Lord brings judgment to all the nations and gives escape to His people. So there is also a spiritual fulfillment to this, a spiritual fulfillment. So it was partially fulfilled when Edom was slowly dissolved as a country or two. And one day it will be fulfilled completely when the Lord returns, when the Lord brings the new Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem from heaven. But it is also being fulfilled right now, today. We need only look back just a few decades in the span of time just a blip, and think about, I don't know, Nazi Germany, to think, to see how God is still pouring out His judgment upon the nations today, nations who are proud and who despise His people. There is past fulfillment, there is future fulfillment of this, and there is present fulfillment. And this leads me to my first point. First observation this morning is this. Number one, Edom is a model for your nation. Edom is a model for your nation. Edom models this, that as each nation has done, it will be done to them. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon every nation for the pride in its heart. Yet the punishment for that pride will perfectly match how that pride had been acted out. Each nation's deeds of pride will come back upon its head. God matches the humbling to perfectly match the pride. No more, no less. God is just. There are no exceptions. There is no exceptionalism. God has spoken. Pride, that sin of sins, that sin of Babel, will bring low all Nations, Obadiah says, all nations. How is your nation proud like Edom? I know there's more than one represented here. How is your nation proud like Edom? Does your nation take pride in the geographic protection afforded by, let's say, oceans? Does your nation rest easy in its military might? Does your nation take pride in its riches and in its riches think that it doesn't need God? What pride lurks in the heart of your nation? Has your nation ever treated a people group brutally as though they were subhuman? Does your nation perhaps even today in pride treat a class of people as being not even human? How has your country treated refugees now or in the past? As your nation stood aloof and gloated at the the harm of another people. How has your country taken pride that it can soar aloft like the eagle and make its nest among the stars? I remember I, I once attended an Air Force Navy football game. Talk about pageantry. Before the game, they did flyovers. One by one, these massive birds of war came flying over the stadium in Colorado Springs. And one by one, they were introduced. And at one point, three fighter jets came flying over, and one of them did a a 90 degree turn right in the middle of the stadium and shot straight up into the sky. The stadium shuddered, shook. I thought to myself, I am so glad I'm on this side of all that firepower. I am so glad. And in that moment, I was Edom. I was Edom, taking pride in the military might of my country. Me, along with all the other people in that stadium, roaring, roaring as then when, with no introduction, came over a stealth bomber right over the top. In that moment, I was Edom. The pride of a nation is in the heart of its people, it is the water we swim in. It is everywhere, and we don't see it. I don't see it. How do I know that? How do I know it's the water we swim in? Let me ask you a question. Um, if somebody said to you, um, you know, so-and-so, he's a, he's, a great, he's a great guy, but he's, you know, he's kind of prideful, well, how, how, would you, how, how do you think most people would respond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but what, if, what if I said, you know, so-and-so, so he's a great guy, but he steals from his employer. What? 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 Ugh. It is the water we swim in. It is the sin of sins. It is the reason why God brought judgment upon Edom, and it is the one reason why God brings judgment upon all the nations, the pride that exists in all our hearts. it is everywhere. Sometimes I think in this divided nation, it's it's the one thing we seem to have in common. It's everywhere. It drives all our advertising, our selfies, our politicking. It's even become part of our gospel. God exists. The gospel is God making me feel better about myself. It is still all about me. Pride even infects our gospel. So we should shudder. We should shudder like that stadium at all of this. Because the day of the Lord is near to your nation, whatever nation that is. Obviously, in some ways, I'm talking about America, but every nation. The day of the Lord, therefore, is near to you, to me. We will all face judgment. And we have many warnings which we so easily forget. How long ago was 9-11? And how, how little do we think about it? And yet, and yet 9-11 was a prophetic warning of the judgment that is coming upon all nations. I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm trying to tell you the truth. The Fukushima disaster, which happened on my birthday, was a, was a prophetic picture of the judgment coming. The current unraveling of the FLDS sect down in southern Utah and Arizona is a picture of the judgment that's coming upon all the pride of men. So when that day comes, no military might will stop it. No amount of wealth will overcome it. No amount of food in the basement will endure it. The glory of God will bow to the pride of no nation. No nation. We will be completely at his mercy. So, what do we do? What do we do about that right now? That leads me to my second point. We fearfully ask God for mercy. We fearfully ask God for mercy. God is just, and He is full of just punishment against all pride. And as I've heard someone say, "But, but that's that's the minor key, if you know your music. That's the that's the black key note." Of Scripture, the the middle C, white key note, is Numbers 34 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we believe that. We believe that that's Him. And we ask Him to restrain His hand in judgment. We ask Him to not give us the leaders that we deserve. We ask Him to be gentle in the foretastes of judgment that He gives. Be gentle, Lord. But with the foretastes and with the gentleness, we we ask Him, would You mercifully pour out Your Spirit on on this people, on on this people and on this people? That that, that this people would would love humility and walk in integrity before You. We, We beg God for this. We beg Him for mercy that he would pour out a spirit of humility upon us. He would make us a people that does not invite his judgment, but, but invites his undeserved favor. God opposes the proud. God actively is against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. President Kennedy challenged us not to ask what our country can do for us, but ask what we could do for our country. The most productive thing you can do for your country is pray to God for mercy. We pray pray for mercy that would lead to repentance of pride, mercy that would result in humility. Now, how would that humility demonstrate itself? That our nation, that your nation and mine, would not despise God's people like Edom arrogantly did. That our nation would not despise the church. Now, wait a second, does that sound self serving? I thought we were praying for the nation. Why are you praying about us? Well, we pray for a sufficient national fear of God that governors and police and legislatures and communities would have the good sense to let the church peacefully gather and worship and keep telling the people the good news. We don't ask this for us. We already know that following Jesus means bearing a cross. We already know that That following Jesus means being hated by the world like he was. We don't ask for us. Now we ask of this, we ask of this, this national fear out of love for the nation. Because we who believe in Jesus have found the only escape from judgment that there is. Verse 17, we have come to Mount Zion. We know the only location of true mercy. Forgiveness for all our pride, everlasting safety, full security, riches forevermore beyond compare, all the glories of the Lord's kingdom. This makes us, you and I, the hope of the nation. So we pray for the nation, that the nation would fear the Lord sufficient, that, that, that we would have, not that all of our legislative priorities would be passed. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply talking about that the church would have space to continue to preach the gospel and to worship the Lord. You are the hope of the nation, Christians. You're the hope of all the nations. This leads me to my third point. In finding escape on Mount Zion, you have become royal saviors to the nations. In finding escape on Mount Zion, you have become royal saviors to the nations. Verse 21 has that oddly plural word. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion. To rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Who are these saviors? It seems best to me to understand that these are the same people who escaped to Mount Zion in verse 17. To escape to Mount Zion means to leave behind Mount Edom, to leave behind all the pride of life, the pride of the nations, the pride that you're you've given your life for. It means in a way that you must leave your country. Not literally. But you must leave behind all that it took pride in, all that it takes pride in up to this day. You must leave it all behind. It means confessing the pride in your own heart that you were part of the problem, that you were Edom and that you deserve Edom's judgment. And then you come to Mount Zion for mercy. You don't deserve mercy. That's the definition of mercy. But when you come to Mount Zion, you find it. You escape from judgment. You find shelter. Look with me briefly at uh, just a... It might not even be a page over. Just in my Bible, it's just up. Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. You find shelter. The end of Amos' prophecy, which sounds a lot like Obadiah, is like a longer version of judgment on the nations. Amos says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David, the booth, the shelter of David that is fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they, God's people, may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord, who does this. <laughs> There's the two actors again. The Lord does it, and yet the Lord does it through his people. They possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, and they possess it by God raising up a booth, a shelter. This is a famous verse because in the New Testament, in Acts 15, it is this very verse of all of the verses in the whole Bible that James picks up and pulls out and says, see God is possessing the nations. The Gentiles are joining Jacob and Joseph in God's people. God is possessing the nations. And God is possessing the nations by creating a a shelter from His own judgment for all the nations, a booth. But that booth, James saw, and we need to see, is not a building. When you climb Mount Zion, you realize that there is a shelter here, and that shelter is not a building but a man, Jesus, the greater David, the King. You find that Jesus has gone before you, and He has experienced the scorn of the King of Edom. It is no coincidence in my mind that it is too rich, to be just a coincidence, that both Herod the Great, who slaughtered the babies of Bethlehem, and Herod Antipas, who stood aloof at the crucifixion of Jesus, were both Edomites. You find that he was gloated over as violence was done to him, as lots were cast for his garments, just like lots were cast for Jerusalem. And yet we find that as each one of us has done, as as, as the two kings of Edom represent our own pride, as each one of us has done in pride, it was done to him instead of us. You find that, that your deeds were returned upon his head, not your own. You find mercy. You find justice, but justice done upon him in your place. So therefore, you find mercy. You find escape. You find shelter from His wrath. There is no more condemnation. There is no more judgment. To escape to Mount Zion is to trust in the sacrifice of King Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And therefore, to escape the just punishment of God for all our pride. If you have never done this, I implore you, run to Mount Zion and trust him. But, but how do escapees become saviors? In ancient times, when kings conquered and possessed a land, they would, they would return home and they would leave an image of themselves in their place a big statue, an idol. The idol was sanctified and it was thought to possess the very presence of that king in that land, reminding all of the people this king possesses this place. It was the image of that king to that people. The Bible knows this. The Bible's familiar with this. Jesus died and was raised three days later and then ascended to heaven. He conquered death And the world. And from heaven, he reigns as king. He is no longer here, not in in a physical presence, but he has filled us with his spirit, his presence. You, Christian, are the image of Christ, the image of the Savior to your nation. You are God's idol. You are God's idol to your nation, to your neighborhood, to your family. You are the physical presence of salvation in Cottonwood Heights, in Mill Creek, in your classroom, on your team, in your workplace. You are God's idol there. You are the image of salvation to this people that is under judgment for all its pride. You are God's mask as He works to possess the nations by raising up the booth of David. You are His mask for that. You are the hope of this nation. You are saviors. Two parties. (laughs) You are saviors because there is one Savior and He has filled you with His Spirit. And because you are His image, His idol, He has clothed you in royal robes. He is king, but He mercifully grants us to reign with Him, to rule over Mount Edom. We will, verse 21, rule Mount Esau. When He returns again, He will bring with Him new Jerusalem, the new Mount Zion, and we will reign with Him, not over a small patch of Palestine, but we will see that the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and earth have become all the world, all the earth. We will enjoy it with Him forever. Do you understand that, Christian? God has made you royalty. And you were reborn to enjoy all the pleasures of His royal court ruling over all the earth forever and ever and ever and ever. That is who you are. That is your destiny. That should inform us and how we approach the world today. God loves reversals. The refugees become the rulers. The dispossessed possess the world. <laughs> so what does this mean for us? What does this mean? Um, I remember my father, um, maybe I've told this here before, but my father, before I would go out carousing on Friday nights, Uh, would say, I didn't do much carousing, but it sounds better to say it that way. um, Whenever I would go out on Friday nights, he would say, now son, remember you're a brown. Remember you're a brown. What did he mean? He meant, remember the name you have. Remember who you are. Remember who you stand for. Out there. When you're you're out there, remember who you represent. Keep it how you got it. Remember who you are. My dad's not royalty, but if he was, he would have said, remember your royalty. Remember the clothes you wear, the royal, the royal robes you wear. Don't take them off. With great privilege comes responsibility. We need to remember who we are when we, when we chase the, the vain, proud idols that we just assume because it's the water we swim in. The idols that are so characteristic of our time and our nation. We stop serving. In that moment, we stop serving as God's idols. We can't do both at the same time. In order to chase after idols, we have to disrobe and take off our royal garments. And the whole, the whole searching after the pride of life, the whole seeking of that, just leaves us disrobed, naked, and ashamed. We stop saying to our neighbors, this is the Lord's kingdom. And we instead say, this is my kingdom. May it advance. May my will be done. This is my land. The idol no longer becomes an idol but chases after idols. The idol's image is meant to be seen, not the king's. So, what do we need? We need forgiveness. And we have it. We have it. The booth of David has been raised up. And we have it. And then we need to remember again who we are. We need to put on again the royal robes that have been given to us all by the mercy and grace of God. All by His own seeking, His own glory. We need to put those robes on again and pray again that we would be controlled by the Spirit, not ourselves, not our own desires. Christian, do you you know who you are? Do you remember who you are? If you remember, then, then pray. Pray for, for repentance deep within your heart. Pray that God would start with us. If humility is not found in us, where will it be found in our nation? So we pray. And we ask God to grant repentance. True, deep down, sincere Humility. Joyful humility. Now the location where we're most likely to receive that repentance is the place of our escape, Mount Zion. I've heard it said before that you can't stay proud if you're sitting at the foot of the cross. It's just impossible. So to repent of pride, you know, it's kind of like stripping an old piece of furniture. You know, you, you think you've gotten down through all the layers, and then there's just, oh, here's another layer. So we need to continue to go back to Mount Zion again and again and again. To the place of our escape. And then we pray that he would fill us again with his spirit. That he when we pray this, we we pray this not to make ourselves feel better about ourselves because of our pride, but so that His royal, resplendent glory would shine through us to our neighbors, to, to our coworkers, workers that, that something of that far-off kingdom would shine through us, that, that, that something of that kingdom would shine and that this, this nation would see something of a better kingdom. That everything that it is chasing is found there, not here. And it is found not through pride, but by faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that that the glory would shine through us, we who were once pitiful refugees, but now have been made royal image bearers of the Lord of His own kingdom. Pray that through you, the Spirit would convict this nation, your nation, whatever nation it is, of its sin of pride, of its need for righteousness before God, and of the coming judgment. Pray that through you, your friends and neighbors and family would, would hear about the one and only place of escape, Mount Zion, at the foot of the cross. Remember who you are, Christian. You are saved saviors. You are delivered deliverers. You are redeemed to rule. You are repentant royalty. So look around at your nation with love. And in love, pray for mercy. And show them Jesus. (laughs) Show them Jesus. Second Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, a very familiar verse. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's pray. Oh Father, I once again thank you that there was once once upon a time in my life when if someone were to tell me that my nation is temporary I would, have, I would have shuddered at that. I would not have known what to do with that. But I thank You that though I am a citizen of one nation, You have made me a dual citizen of another. And that nation will, will never end. That nation is the place of, of all security, all power, all glory all joy, all riches, all peace forever and ever and ever and ever. And I carry citizenship in that country all by Your mercy. All by Your mercy. What a gracious God You are. So I pray, would You fill us with faith? Fill us with faith to believe that the Gospel is as as just incredibly good as You say that it is. That Your grace really does exceed all our sin. That upon You, all of the, the condemnation for our sin has fallen. And now we are free. Free to live like Your royal subjects. And so please fill us with Your Spirit that we would indeed do that. Give us grace, fill us with Your Spirit that we would image You, that we truly would serve well as Your idols in this nation. Be merciful, but in mercy glorify Your name. Pray this in Your name.
0: Amen.